morning. Uh, today's scripture passage is Revelation 21, verses 1 through 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Thank you, Thank you Joe, for reading. If you were to have a friend that had a wedding and you were to ask them a little bit, you weren't able to go to the wedding, but you were asking them how did things go, my guess is that you don't expect your friend to pull out some outline complete with Roman numerals and say, well, let me tell you about the wedding. Roman numeral one, there was the prelude. Roman numeral two, the procession, subpoint A underneath. You, you would not expect that. My guess is you would probably expect pictures to come out. You would probably expect some sort of video or something that would draw you in. Because there's some things that you just can't communicate very well through arranging and organizing an outline. I say that because this is what Joe just read a moment ago is such a special piece of scripture. I'm not sure just giving an outline and trying to like dissect it is the most helpful way of understanding it. The amazing things that God has for us here. So I actually come with a, a really big ambition today as we open God's word together. And that ambition is that I want you to see this picture. I want it to settle in on our hearts, what we just heard. I want our hearts to be moved in such a way I I can't, there's no way I could accomplish that, but I, I do believe God's word does the work and our eyes can be opened and we can see things maybe as if we're even seeing them for the first time. I want this passage, I want it to shake our priorities in such a way where we evaluate exactly what we're living for. I would love if the people of God walked out of here with hope that was built and reinforced because of this passage today. We aren't just going to escape to another world. What I'd like to do is view that new heaven and new earth and bring it into our world. Actually, I don't have an outline today. What I would rather do is, I'd rather just highlight some things. That's what I feel like. You can't outline Revelation. Others can. I can't really outline that. What I'd love to do is take a a highlighter and highlight some things and just say, you've got to pay attention to this. You've got to see this. 
I love to take a pen and the way I work on sometimes when I'm working on a passage, I, I circle these things, I draw arrows, I, I write exclamation points, like I don't want to forget that, I want to see that. And that's really, that's really what I'd like to do for us today as we look at uh, Revelation 21. Our hearts might be moved by what we see, and if I can just highlight or circle some things or bring them to your attention, I would be, I'd be very, very grateful. The vision that John lays out And it's worth reading again. In the first eight verses, goes into detail later on. But these first few verses, verse 1, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. As I see a new heaven and a new earth, it just takes me back to Genesis 1. You open your Bibles in Genesis 1.1, it's in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And here it's that similar wording, only the first heaven, the first earth have passed away. And we have a new heaven. A new earth, something new is happening. This earth, the, this heaven, all of creation. Romans 8 talks about like creation itself just groans. It longs to be set free from the curse it is under. And we know this from, from even Genesis 3. All of creation is under a curse. There are things that just go wrong in our world. And there's this longing to be freed from that. And here the picture is. It's happening. It's happening. We love renovation projects. Even as a culture, I mean, it warrants a whole channel or two on a cable network to just show episode after episode after episode of something that had been messed up or run down, getting renewed, getting restored. And it draws us in. We, we like that picture. Imagine that on a heaven and earth kind of scale. And that is what is being talked about. This is renewed creation. And John says, he sees it. He sees new heaven and new earth, but he sees it as a city, a city coming down out of heaven from God. He calls it New Jerusalem. And Jerusalem in that, in that world would be known, much like even in our world, known as a, a very, kind of a center of religion, a center of people's worship kind of a a capital, a a place where people would gather. And and the focal point of God's presence in the Old Testament was Jerusalem. And here, John says, I see a new one. I see a new Jerusalem coming down. And he says, it's not only a city, but it's also, I saw a bride. The, The images just mix all over the place in Revelation. But he sees the city, but he's also talking about a bride. And we're familiar with the image of the bride. The bride of the Lamb, the people of God. He's seeing God's people represented as a city, represented as a bride. He's not only seeing things in Revelation, but he's hearing things as well. He's hearing in verse 3. Again, we read this a moment ago, but it's, it's too good not to read again. Revelation 21.3, I heard a loud voice, a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be His people. God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. 
Neither shall there be any mourning or crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. When you read verse 3, the dwelling place of God is with humans. You are tapping into a vein in Scripture that goes all the way back to Genesis. In Genesis 17, God makes a promise with Abraham. And he, this is the promise he makes in Genesis 17. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring. And the covenant is this. I will be God to you. You will be my people. I will be your God. This is language that is picked up now in Revelation to say eternity is this God dwelling with us. Exodus 6, right before the exodus of Israel from, from Egypt. This is what God says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Kind of the Old Testament is filled with like, will that ever really happen? Could that ever happen? And then you get this exclamation point here in Revelation 21 saying, it is happening. It is happening. God is dwelling with his people. If if you were to trace this theme of God dwelling with his people all throughout Scripture, I mean, you're going to go to places like Ezekiel where God promises to be God and to have people and to dwell with them. And you're going to, to hear the words of Isaiah 7 where it says, you call his name Emmanuel, which means... God with us. What a great name for Jesus. That, that's the name, right? God with us. It's why John would say in John 1, we beheld his glory. Whose glory? The word who has made flesh and dwelled among us. It was a taste when Jesus came, but now that taste is far more than a taste. Now it's become permanent. It's become the whole experience. God dwelling with his people. To trace this all throughout Scripture takes more time than we have. Because there's other descriptions in verse 4 right on the heels of that, and that would be enough. Right on the heels of that, verse 4 tells us he wipes away tears. He says, death will be no more. No more mourning, crying, pain. The descriptors are interesting. It's interesting how John hears all this. Imagine that I am taking you to a new place, but imagine that all you've ever known, let's say all you've ever known is fear. All you've ever known is worrying where your next meal is coming from. All you've ever known is to be insecure. Maybe all you've ever known is slavery. If we were to imagine that, I would have a hard time describing to you freedom and prosperity and security and care, and love. I'd have a hard time describing that unless I talked about it kind of in a negative way. Unless I said, your experience now, it's not that. And that is exactly what John does. I think it's because our imagination, our heart cannot even process what God has for us. So it's all these negative descriptions that have a very, very positive message. So when John wants us to understand what he is describing, he said, it's just like this. Tears will just disappear and there will not be a trace of them. They are never to return. It's interesting. I, 
I did pull out my pen and I did circle this week all the times where I read something like previous or never or no more or no longer or nothing or no one or passed away. All these times. I mean, it's over and over again in these chapters. John is very clearly telling us some things are coming to an end and there's going to be, you know your experience here on this earth, you know the experience of death where there's separation, where there's loss and it seems so final. All that's gone. All that's gone. All that's done. You know your experience of mourning where the sorrow that's experienced and expressed where it hurts so deeply. All that's gone. You know what it's like to cry out the grief that finds a voice that says, this is not the way I wanted it to be. This is not how I wanted it to end. That experience is over. You know the experience of great trouble we call pain where it hurts so deeply that you can barely sometimes get words to describe it. John says, all that... All that is over. It's all over. And when I read that, I say, oh my goodness, that day cannot come quickly enough. We want that day here. John says that's what's coming. It says in verse 5, he who was seated on the throne. Now God himself is talking. He says, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning, the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. There's interesting words in Revelation. I'm struck when I hear the one on the throne, God Almighty, saying, It's done. And yet, he's also the one that says, I am making everything new. So I have these words, like, it seems like things are ending. It seems like things are beginning. Which is it? Is it a beginning or an ending? And the answer would be yes. Yes, it's an ending. It's coming to a clear end point. And there are things that have begun that are going to go on permanently because he's making things new. What a promise. What a promise. And what good would that promise be, though, that God is making all things new if I were going to be obliterated and not not even there to see it, not even there to enjoy it? But then we hear verse 6 loud and clear. To the thirsty, God says, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. So you try out this world and you try to like get what you can. You try to pursue lots of things and it always leaves you like not completely satisfied. Is there something more? And you say, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty for this picture. I'm thirsty for this description. And John says, the new heaven and new earth here is available. It's available. Our generous God does not require any user fees. He does not require an initiation fee, an annual buy-in to enjoy the privileges that are described here. That's not how this works. He gives this without payment. There's no price that we're, we're bringing. Are you thirsty? There's water. There's water to drink. So, of course, I'm going to tell you this morning, believe in Jesus Christ. Rest in what He has done for you that you could never do for yourself. Turn from trusting everything, anything that you would trust in to kind of quench that thirst of your soul. Not just like the thirst of your mouth, but but of your soul. 
what else can quench that other than Jesus? Would you like to know more about it? Well, I, I know there's room filled with people here that would love to talk more about that with you. We'd love to walk with you. Even if you're like, I don't know how I'm piecing all this together, I just know life as it is is not very satisfying. There's such a picture here, and I, I wish I could spend more time on each one of these images, but when you hear words like new heaven, new earth, when you hear words like the bride, when you hear things like no more death, no more pain, no more mourning, you are actually hearing no new information. Actually, this has been, all of this has been said before. John has no original material here. It is almost as if every word of Revelation 21 was spoken, was promised in the Old Testament. This summer, when we were on vacation, we were in this area, kind of outdoor area, where there were there were shops and restaurants and stores, and there was a stage, and there was a place where people could gather and listen to some live music. And our family was there, and we were listening to the music, and the people playing were not playing any, any original songs. They were doing covers of this song and that song. And as you heard, and they played for a long time, and it was hot, and they were playing for a long time. And you would hear, like, the beginning notes of a song, and you would say, oh, I know that one. I know that one. And you would hear another one. It's like, oh, that one's, that one's great. That's another good one. It was a medley, not, not an original medley. It was taking all these familiar notes, bringing them all together with one medley to enjoy for about a half hour. I, I hear John doing that. He takes places all over the Old Testament and he begins to put those together. So Isaiah 65 talked about a new heaven. Isaiah 52 said God's people are a bride. Ezekiel 37, God said he would dwell with his people. Isaiah 43, God said he would make all things new. Zechariah 2, the nations will be God's people. Isaiah 25, there will be no more death. Isaiah 65, the former things have passed away. Isaiah 55, God offers that all can drink from the water of life. What John sees, what John hears, is the entire Bible. Just medley kind of compressed here and laid on our hearts. Let this settle in. God knows how to bring everything together. God knows how to take this promise and that promise and this purpose and this purpose and bring it all together for our good. He is in control, much like Pastor Champ read a moment ago from Isaiah. He keeps promises. He works out his plan. He accomplishes his purposes. He's doing that with creation. It isn't spinning out of control. And so, because of that, because God knows how to do all this that he's promised with creation, I think he can manage your upcoming semester. I think he's well capable of that. I think he's capable of walking with you and working out his purposes in your retirement or whatever stage of life you find yourself in. I think the family issues that rightfully burden your heart, he has a purpose and a plan for you in them. I think the the personal issues, the, the struggles with friends, the things that we dread, the things that we fear, I believe he knows the way. He knows the way because he is the way. Do we trust in him? Do we rely on him? Do we listen to him?
it'd be easy as all this is kind of unfolding to think this is just kind of pie in the sky fairy tale land where no one's really talking about the the harsher dimensions of life it's just saying oh yeah it's all better and really pretending as if there's no bad things in this world but then reality hits when we get to verse 8 because verse 8 says this as for the cowardly as for the faithless as for the detestable as for the murderers as for the sexually immoral the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I think if you don't tremble a little bit, I don't know that you're reading this right. Because I, I read those descriptions there of a, a detestable or a murderer, and I think of what Jesus said, if you have anger in your heart, I think of the sexually immoral and Jesus saying, if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. Faithless? I mean, are there times where my faith has wobbled such where that would be a description? Cowardly? Is there a place where I could look back? And then I realize the curse of sin begins to weigh heavy until, until I remember a few things. I need to remind myself. I need to feel the weight of this, but then I remind myself that was my identity before I met Christ. I was under the curse, and the curse meant I, I, I was this, but because of what Christ has done, because the Lamb has purchased us by His blood, I can sing something like, no guilt in life, no fear in death. Sin's curse has lost its grip on me. That's what we were singing about. We would, we would be under sin's curse if it not were for the work, work of Jesus Christ, who clothes us in white robes, which is His righteousness, it gives us a new name and says, you are mine and nothing will take you out of my hand. Our destiny is secured if we're in Jesus. You see this scene and John, like, that's the building blocks of this whole new heaven and new earth, but then he's like, let's look a little closer. Let's look a little closer. Look at verse 9. It's more of the description. He says, uh, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke to me, but now there's no plagues and there's no wrath of God being poured out. He says, come, I will show you the bride. We're going to get the best vantage point for the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. He showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And it had the glory of God. Its radiance like a a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. He looks east, north, south, and west. There are three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. On them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. I love the description of the new heaven and the new earth. It's very much a, a place... It's Jerusalem. So think of it. Think of new heaven, new earth as a place. It's very much a people. It's a bride. And it's very much the presence of God dwelling with us. It's a place. It's a people. It's a presence. And I think we've got to remember this description of heaven because this description of new heaven and new earth, however we think of it, let us always like relate it back to the Lord. When you've been around church as long as... I have, if you've heard as many messages as I've heard, you've heard people talk, and even at, at funerals I've been at, people talk about, you know, heaven's like this great, great golf course, you know, or it's beautiful scenery, or it's like heaven's all the, all the fried chicken you could eat. I grew up in the South, so 
or heaven's going to be like uh, uh, my, my favorite place on the lake, or heaven's going to be like the, the best family reunion ever imaginable. And I can appreciate what's being done in those pictures. It's certainly trying to make sure we understand it's very real. But at the same time, you do realize heaven is all about the one on the throne and the Lamb. Without that, it's not heaven. If we don't want him, we, we don't want new heaven and new earth because he is right at the center. That's why the description, yes, he sees the bride, but it's the bride of the Lamb. Yes, he sees a city, but it's a city that's a holy city. It's a city that's set apart for the one on the throne. Yes, he sees a, a city coming down, but it's, it's coming down from God. God is bringing this city down. Yes, he sees a city that's bright, but it's, in verse 11, it's arrayed with God's glory. The new heaven, new earth, it's all about God. And the descriptions of the city and, and even the wall and the gates, the foundation, are, are so telling to us. If you thought of an ancient city, the, the wall was that source of protection. Gates were the place of access. And you needed a foundation to give security and stability because of earthquakes or anything else that could happen. And when John sees the gates, he says, above the gate are written twelve names, and those are the twelve tribes of Israel, the names of the sons of Jacob. And you think, all you have to do is read Genesis, and the sons of Jacob did some rough, rough stuff. But part of God's redemptive plan is using people who have done some rough, rough stuff. And God has worked through his purposes in their lives. The foundation, it says, they have a name on them. The foundation says the apostles. And so you can imagine each apostle is named there. And I think the apostles, they're the ones that betrayed the Lord. They're the ones that were proud, saying, though, everybody, you know, I won't. They argue about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They get it all wrong in so many levels. And here, part of the new heaven and new earth has their name written. They're the first ones to bring the message. He's, he's alive. He's risen. And this is what that means. God has come to work in our world. The city is described more in this chapter. It's like perfectly symmetrical and it's large and it's beautiful. We're meant to be stunned. But I do want to kind of skip ahead to the, the description of the city in verse 21. Because I, I just want to make sure we're hearing this is a real place. And make sure whatever idea you thought of, I don't know, heaven's like some sort of cloud, harp, meaning, you know, not, no matter, no, no real stuff, no existence. Like, let's just banish that from our thoughts, because that's not what's being described here. There are 12 gates with 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And so we've got Main Street in the city. Main Street, city, the street is pure gold like transparent glass, a little bit different than our Main Street in Newark. It's all torn up right now. You would think, and John kind of follows the logic on Main Street, you would think, well, if God is really present here, there, there should be a place of worship, a place where I could go and you know, be in God's presence. And he looks and there's no temple. But it says in verse 22, I, yeah, I didn't see a temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. There's no temple there. Because actually, because God's dwelling with us, the whole place is holy ground. The new heaven and new earth, all of it's holy ground. Where do you meet God? Where, where you are. What a beautiful picture. And a picture of communion, nothing hindering, nothing upsetting. John is struck also as he looks around, kind of comparing our world with the new heaven and new earth. He says, there's no sun, no moon there. And that was 
you know, that rattles John because, I mean, my goodness, my goodness, since Genesis 1, there had been sun and moon and stars giving light. And he says, no, no, there's no need for that. For the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. He then goes on to talk about kings and nations. In verse 24, by its light, the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Make note of that. So we've got kings bringing glory into this city. The gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring into it glory and honor of the nations, and nothing unclean ever enters it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The nations, the kings, they, they bring their glory to the Lord, and the gates are wide open because any threat is gone. There's nothing unclean. There's no sin. There are only people who have been given a new heart by God, who have the the Spirit as a part of them. The old flesh that leads us to sin, Satan who tempts us to sin, this world no longer, none of that exists as a threat. The gates are wide open. I'm not sure all of what this is saying, but as the kings and the nations go in and out, the picture, the picture, especially when I read this alongside a chapter like Isaiah 60, I can't help but wonder if, although John only gives us like a little description of it, could it be that we are seeing what it looks like when productivity from all over the world, creativity from all over the world, from every nation is being brought into this place called new heaven and new earth. Because the curse isn't present, present it's been lifted. There's no work that brings futility. There's no work that like there's thorns and sweat like Genesis 3 describes. There's no grief, there's no anger, there's no hostility, there's no environmental hazards. What would the world be like? What if humans could make things for God's glory and is only for His glory? And there was no obstacle like the curse that hinders so much now. What I do know, what I do know, is that heaven, whatever it is, and I, I think John's just giving us a glimpse because he can't even unpack the full picture. What it won't be is any, any disappointment for us. Like, man, we had it really good back in Delaware. Like, it, it, we could do all kinds of fun stuff, but heaven's just kind of boring. I don't know. It seemed like we took a step back when we got the new heaven. and It will not be that. None of that. None of that, because nothing is misused or twisted. We won't be shortchanged. Nothing is futile, leading to regrets. Nothing takes away from the giver. What if the things that bring you the greatest joy, and I don't know what that is. Maybe it's work, maybe it's play, but what if those things, you, you love learning. What if learning was a, a part in being developed and developed and de- developed and no pride is attached to this? What if, what if science and technology is your thing and and it develops and develops into things that glorify the Lord. What if learning about history is your thing and you get an eternal perspective? What if exercise or what if traveling the world is your thing and, and now you do it with all, all the things that inhibited that are now taken away? It's an amazing world to think about. Some of the authors of our age went, because our world is developed. I mean, we... We can pull out a device and talk real time to people around the world. I mean, we have developed amazing technology, but we also know, and authors in our world also say, yeah, with that, though, has come some downsides. Yeah, we've developed in some areas, but we miss something when we don't have the dinner table. We miss something when we've kind of lost the art of writing letters. 
we've missed something when we can't even converse with each other in a civil way. Yeah, we've gained so much, but we've lost something. But what if there is no downsides? What if there's no loss? Imagine where nothing's diminished. There's kind of this final cityscape in the next chapter, in chapter 22 and verse 1. The angel, he's showing John, I, I wish more of this was recorded. I'd love to know more about new heaven and new earth. I'm not sure any of us could take it. The angel showed me the river of the water of life. So we got the picture. It flows from the throne of God. So that's kind of in the middle of it all. This river flows through the middle of the street, main street there of the city, and on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. So John's seeing, what he's, what he's not seeing is just clouds. What he's seeing is real existence here. Main street, water and river, cities are often built around that. In the center of town, well, well, of course, at the center of town is the throne. That's center city. And the lamb is right there. And there are landmarks. There's the trees, and they're productive. And everything is about life. We have a book of life. We have a tree of life. We have water of life. Everything's about life here. You can get lost in the beauty of the city, but actually John doesn't let us just go, wow, that will be an amazing place. It'd be fun to see all that for our own eyes. John also begins to talk about something else that's real, and it's not just the city, it's a relationship, a relationship with God himself. What he says in Revelation 22 and verse 3 is in this city no longer will there be anything accursed. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. And this says in Revelation 22.4, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They don't need light or lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. So just briefly here, we've got nations and we've got people. And he, he says, you're part of that if you trusted in Jesus. And in no way demeaning, he says, you are a servant of the living God, of the Lamb. The servants are there. But the service is such that it's not demeaning work. It's like ministry work. So everyone who's trusted in Jesus, you're all in the ministry. You're all serving the Lord. We're all there together, and, and we're worshiping Him. All of life is lived to His glory. What are your skills? What is your personality? All of that is for God's glory. And in verse 4, it kind of highlights they see his face. This has been a longing in Scripture ever since Adam and Eve had to leave the garden. Like, when is there going to be this fellowship with God restored? Moses longed to see the face and, and remember even God's glory passed by him, but he didn't see his face. But now it's seen. No imperfection, no defect in our relationship that hinders us. And it even says in verse 4, His name is written on us. Such close identity. He's marked off as His. 
there are people in your life where you would say, I'm proud to be his friend. I'm proud to be his son, his daughter. I'm proud to be his father, his mother. I'm proud to be associated with that person. I think, what will it mean to wear the name of the Lord? And say, we, we are His. We are His. And verse 5 says, and they reign. They reign. They take dominion. They exercise authority. This is what God had designed Adam and Eve to do at the beginning. To exercise dominion over this earth. And here it's done perfectly. They're, they're reigning. All for God's glory. Done just the way God wants it. There's so much about this passage, again, that I want to get my highlighter out and go, oh man, this, look at this, look at this, look at this. But I'm left to kind of set the highlighter and the pen down and say, okay, think about this. We don't have to dissect this picture to appreciate its powerful word to the followers of Jesus, and maybe we're left with a few things. One would be, when is all this going to happen? When? When? Revelation 22 answers that question three times. Verse 7, verse 12, verse 20. Jesus speaks and says, I'm, I'm coming soon. And we have to remember, like, well, I would say, like, not soon enough, but a day with the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. It's like, when, when are you coming, Lord? And how do we live in this world while we're waiting, while we're living expectantly? Well, we we do so with hope. We purify ourselves. We make sure we're ready. And we do now what we will do forever, and that is glorify God. That's what we do. We live our lives all for His glory. And in the end, this is what we say. This is what we say. It's what John said to end the book of Revelation. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That's what we say. Come, Lord Jesus. Let me ask you to bow your head. Our Father, what is there to say? Thank you for John giving us this description. I'm so grateful that this is the way you chose to end your revelation to us. Thank you for the hope it gives us, how it sustains us, how it gives us something greater to look forward to. So we do say, come Lord Jesus. And I pray that we would be ready eager for your appearing. Father, thank you for what we've seen, but uh, there's so much hope in my heart. There's so much more that we haven't seen. Father, what we see dimly, I pray that that will be enough to give us strength and faith and hope until we meet you face to face. Uh, Thank you, Lord, for this word. I'm your disciple. We ask it in Christ's name.